do you need to have a body to think? As human beings, we've never been able to test out thinking without having a body. Uh, but when we're creating artificial intelligence, this is a relatively worthwhile question. It's a question that often perplexes and, and occupies the mind of Dr. Mark Bickard, who's our guest this week on the Tech Emergence podcast. He's in the field of cognitive robotics, which is a, uh, a, uh, a field that is of the belief that some degree of cognition and intelligence and maybe even consciousness requires a kind of embodiment and direct interaction with the world. Quite an interesting perspective and very different from the understanding of a machine like HAL that can simply be a cold machine with a little red light on it and sort of be a sagaciously wise artificial intelligence that maybe in fact some kind of embodiment is required. You can see for yourself whether or not you buy the arguments, but it's certainly a worthwhile discussion. Without further ado, we'll roll directly into the interview. So, Mark, I wanted to begin things before we talk about sort of embodiment and thinking and, and the future of this field. I want to start off by defining cognitive robotics. I can imagine many of the folks in our audience would have a good understanding of those words when separated, but maybe not an exact understanding of the field that is uh, the result of the combination of the two. What is cognitive robotics? Cognitive robotics is an orientation to cognition that basically uh, holds that cognition arises in systems that actually interact with the world, not just process inputs from the world. So robots are uh, a prime example of that, although obviously not the only example. Yeah. All animals would also be examples. For sure. Th things that actually interact with the world are crucial uh, to cognition according to this orientation. Got it. And, and that'll sort of bring us into our, our you know, next one, uh, as to your thoughts around the necessity of embodiment in thought. I know that there's philosophers that have sort of had this notion that a black box without any holes in it, without any legs or arms, uh, without any senses, um, no matter what could sort of be placed into this black box, maybe we could never say that it thinks. Maybe we could never say uh, that, that it experiences. Um, I, maybe consciousness is an issue that we'll talk about separately. Um, Thought and embodiment, why do you consider them to be kind of in, in, inherently connected and, and uh, you know, if in fact you do, and for, for whatever reason I believe that you do? Okay, um, there's a, a, a dominant orientation to the nature of representation and therefore to the nature of cognition that holds that representation is some sort of a correspondence between something in the head and something in the world and that correspondence co somehow constitutes an encoding of whatever it is it's in correspondence with, so like a table or a chair or whatever it is out in the world. This general way of thinking about representation has been around since at least the Greeks. Nobody has ever been able to make good on it. There are a whole family of very strong arguments that it's impossible, but nevertheless it's the one that's still around. One way to look at this, uh, this is a term introduced by Dewey, they are, that these are all spectator models. They're sort of spectatoring, looking backwards down the input stream to see where it's coming from. A different orientation is a future orientation. It's an orientation that roughly arose in, in pragmatics with Peirce 100 and some years ago. Uh, and the future orientation, as I talk about it, is in terms of anticipations of what the system could actually do in the world. Uh, that word anticipation takes a lot of unpacking in order to make good on it, but the intuition, I think, is clear. Uh, an anticipation, excuse me, uh, about how
how the interactive flow of an organism with its world is going to go could turn out to be correct or it could turn out to be incorrect. Yep. If, if I anticipate and then I engage in whatever it is that I've anticipated and it doesn't go as the anticipation has indicated, that falsifies it. So anticipations can have truth value. They can, uh, truth value is the most fundamental characteristic of representation. So uh -huh. my claim is that representation emerges in these interactive anticipations. Um, but notice that interactive anticipations can only occur in a system that can interact in the first place, and interaction requires embodiment. And so we're back to embodiment. We're back to some system that actually can interact with its world somehow or another. Curious. So, you know, it's funny you mentioned truth value. I for whatever reason, I'm having some kind of small flashback to reading um, uh, William James, um, and I'm not sure if it's his perspective on pragmatism that you're quoting or, or Dewey's, as you had mentioned beforehand, but for whatever reason, I was like, truth value? Why am I, uh, why am I getting taken back to a book I read 10 years ago? Um, uh, so, so it might be supposed then that if we had a, a, a machine um, well, you know, maybe we'll think about it this way. This is curious. Um, there are people uh, who who have some semblance of a locked-in syndrome and who may not any longer, you know, maybe some of them can see. Certainly many of folks who have the locked-in syndrome can hear and can see. But let's say that someone who is locked-in syndrome, in other words, they have no control uh, over their muscles and no feeling uh, through through their skin as an organ, um, if they lost sight and sound, and maybe I, I you know, I suppose taste as well, hypo completely hypothetically, um, would we say that maybe what they're doing then, that person who was a person before this horrible event, a stroke, whatever the case may be, um, would we say that what they're doing in their skulls now is no longer uh, thinking to some degree, or that they're they're incapable of additional thought after they've been shut out completely? If if we're able if we're able to do that. Uh, I, I wouldn't draw that conclusion uh, for for at least two reasons. One is, um, if they've been an interactive system, then they could still engage in these processes of anticipations of potential interactions, even though they couldn't actually engage in the interactions themselves. So the anticipations of potentialities could be there. Notice that anticipations of potentialities can be potentialities that are not necessarily potential right now. So I can anticipate getting on a plane um, uh, three weeks from now to go to Italy where I'm going to a conference. Um, but I couldn't do that right this moment. Uh, so anticipations can themselves be sort of contextualized in that way, and they don't have to be anticipations of what's possible right this instant. So someone in, in a totally locked-in framework could still engage in those kinds of anticipations. Uh, there's another aspect to this. Uh, of why I wouldn't draw that conclusion. Sure. And uh, that that connects already with the, the notion of consciousness, because I would argue that there are that, that consciousness comes in at least two different flavors. It isn't a unitary phenomenon. And one flavor of consciousness is uh, those anticipations concerning the world, um, and those you could engage in the anticipations, but not the interactions. But the other flavor of consciousness is an internal reflection, an internal interactive process, uh, for which I have some ideas of, about how that actually occurs in the brain. And unless that was actually disrupted, 
um, even someone in a totally locked-in framework could still engage in that those internal interactions. That, that model of thought as internal interaction, incidentally, is very similar to Piaget's notion of thought. So there's and Piaget himself has roots in pragmatism. So there's some strong oh, pragmatism frameworks here. Oh, I, I did not I did not know of his own philosophical leanings or, or kind of origins there. Um, so. Would it you know in this school of thought per se in cognitive robotics, um, there are some folks who would potentially believe that a, you know a system like Watson could, if if given all the constructs and constituents of, of a human mind, um, gain some semblance of awareness and do what we would call thinking. You know, just just by by receiving, you know, these you know reading Wikipedia. Uh, having the right kinds of neural nets set up, whatever the case may be, I'm certainly not a not an AI person by schooling. Um, would you, in your perspective or, or school of thought, believe that that would maybe not be so? That a system like Watson maybe is not in fact thinking now and could not, even if we replicated whatever's in the human head, um, could not sort of do what we would call uh, thinking. Yeah, I would argue that something like Watson could not, for at least two reasons. Um, one is it doesn't interact. Uh, uh, I suppose you could try to claim it interacts with a chessboard. I'm not sure how well you can make good on that. But more fundamentally, the interactions have to be normative. The interactions have to potentially be able to succeed or fail. The anticipations have to potentially be correct or incorrect as anticipations um, uh, in, in order for this to work. And the correct, incorrect is a normative concept. So computers simply aren't normative. Uh, speak speak that, to me just quickly about normative as a term. I know I know that um, you know uh, if I'm somewhat familiar with research, I should be able to automatically apply this. But I can imagine most of our listeners may not. What do you mean by a normative term? Well, yeah, that's a standard and a very good question. Um, normativity is usually associated with ethics, and appropriately so, good and bad, and so on. But normativity really uh, is a property of a number of different distinctions where there's an asymmetry uh, among the distinctions such that some are better than others from some sense of better. So like, uh -huh. I think the most, the most fundamental sense of normativity is a certain notion of function. So like kidneys have the function of filtering blood. And that's a normative point which makes makes sense out of the fact that kidneys can also be dysfunctional because they don't filter blood or they filter it poorly or something like that. Or hearts can pump blood poorly. So you've got, you've got a, a normative functional notion there at the biological level. And I would argue that um, that notion of normative function is what underlies a lot of other normativities emergent normativities from that, including representation and ultimately even ethics. Huh. Um, okay, so that might be a way for us to understand normative. Now, you had mentioned that um, these anticipations are normative uh, for this quote-unquote thinking machine, and what you're saying is that if it can't have an interaction happen out in the world, um, then it, it can't ever really test the goodness or badness of its, its anticipations uh, in the same kind of maybe we would call real way that, that an entity like ourselves that can touch and feel and think uh, could. Well, that's true. But 
a, a deeper root of that is the model of what constitutes emergent normativity. Um, I don't think computers could ever have normativity for the following reason. It seems to me that normativity arises in a thermodynamic sense. It arises in systems that are far from thermodynamic equilibrium. So like a candle flame. Um, these kinds of systems are different from other sorts of systems like a rock. A rock is a stable organization of processes uh, and its stability depends on its being in some kind of in the sense that the rock will sit around or an atom will sit around for cosmological time periods unless some bunch of energy that's above threshold comes in and breaks it up. Yep. In particular, if you isolate a rock, it goes to thermodynamic equilibrium and it's perfectly happy. It can stick around for billions of years. <laughs> but if you have a far from equilibrium system like a candle flame or a living system and you isolate it, it goes to equilibrium and thereby ceases to exist. So far from equilibrium systems have to be maintained in their far from equilibrium conditions. And that maintenance, so I argue, is functional relative to that continued existence. So the bacterium that swims up a sugar gradient is going after food, not that it knows that, but it's going after food, and in that sense it's contributing to its own far from equilibrium to the maintenance of its own far from equilibrium conditions. A candle flame does that in an extremely simple manner. Uh, the candle flame maintains above combustion threshold temperature, which induces convection, brings in oxygen, gets rid of waste products, all this kind of stuff. So a candle flame is self-maintenance. It maintains some of the conditions for its own existence. A bacterium is what I call recursively self-maintenance, in the sense that if the candle flame is running out of wax, it can't do anything. It's got no alternatives. Yep. But the bacterium, if it finds itself going down the sugar gradient, will tumble. And then it'll start swimming again. If it's still going down a gradient, it'll tumble again until it finds itself going up a sugar gradient. And then it will keep sw tend to keep swimming for a while. So notice that swimming is functional for the bacterium as long as it's going up the gradient. But it's dysfunctional for the bacterium if it's going down the gradient. Yes. And unlike the candle flame, the bacterium can sense the difference and adopt different activities based on the circumstances that it finds itself in. So it self-maintains its condition of being self-maintenance, which is why I call it recursive self-maintenance. We, we just went pretty philosophical on these poor guys. But, but, I'm, but I'm with you, and I, I enjoyed it. I particularly enjoyed the part where you anthropomorphized the rock, and you said... You know, if you leave a rock to itself, it can be perfectly happy and, and be by itself for billions of years. I just, it made me, gave me an endearing thought of a, of a rock just by itself for billions of years and just how happy that would make a rock. Um, you know, you've but, heard of pet rocks, yeah. Yeah, no, I mean, that was, that was just great. I just thought about, like, a rock being in and of itself for billions of years and just sitting there kind of, like, just being very content. Just like, yes, I'm exactly, I'm just a damn rock. Um, but, uh, so, so your, your thought... And, and we're we're getting a little bit philosophical, but I'm 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 down to to go this route. Is uh, is that th these activities um, outside of itself, you know, going up the sugar gradient, burning fuel, um, are are required uh, are are required in a system that we would consider to be thinking. You tied that to sort of normative that that normative had to do with, and you tied that to thermodynamics, which in some way I think went over my head. Um, bring bring back this idea of the bacterium to to what is required in thought per per your theory here. 
Well, okay, two directions to go with it. One direction is it's because, if I'm right, it's because of this dependence on far from equilibrium thermodynamic conditions that a computer will never be able to do this because computers are not far from equilibrium. They're not at equilibrium, but basically every part in a computer is like the rock. It's, you know, it's a piece of metal or whatever it may be. Uh, this doesn't preclude the possibility of someday building these kinds of systems that are far from equilibrium. But computers, as we contemporarily understand them, aren't. Um, the other direction to go with that is the direction you were more explicitly asking about. And that has to do with it's because of the normativity that, well, okay, let me, let me build an intermediate point here. Yeah. In evolution, with complex agents, we move away from bacteria. Bacteria don't really have any choices. They just get triggered to do what they're going to do. But consider a frog. The frog could flick its tongue one direction for a fly, it could flick its tongue another direction for a fly, and it could flick its tongue down for a worm. It's got choices. It has to have indications of multiple possibilities, and then it has to be able to select among them. So the, this necessity to indicate possibilities emerges naturally in evolution whenever you get complicated agents. This is a functional characteristic of complicated agents. Complicated agents have to have indications of interactive possibilities. And once evolution creates systems that have that, as long as those are normative functions for indicating possibilities, then they can be right or wrong. They can be correct or incorrect. They can be true or false. And that's the connection between the normativity issue and uh, the representation issue. Really be true or false if, there, if, the, if the system itself has no stake in them. If there's nothing normative for the system about them, the system's just going to do whatever it's going to do regardless. There's no way for the system to have a stake because there's no way for the system to disappear, appear, persist, not persist. It just causally does whatever it's going to do. If, if it's not far from equilibrium. Yep. In terms of, of the, the robotics example, you know, in terms of a, a robot maybe being more capable of cognition, uh, which I suppose we could probably argue about the definition of all these terms, but let's uh, save ourselves all of that for the sake of the length of the podcast. Um, if, if a robot is to be capable of cognition in a way that a black box with a bunch of circuits wouldn't be, um, how much quote-unquote interactivity does this box have to have in order to now be thought of as being capable of thinking, uh, as, as redundant as that just sounded. In other words, um, a box with uh, a camera hole on one end of it uh, would be a box that can now in some way interact with the world. A box with a camera hole and a microphone somewhere would be interacting with the world uh, more so. A box with a camera hole, a microphone, and some wheels with the little motors in there uh, would, would be able to interact. And then if those, if those wheels had some kind of sensors so it knew what it was rolling on, um, maybe that would now be something else. At which point does this thing think, or can it think more when it can sense and interact more? In other words, as soon as we slap a microphone in that unthinking black box, can it now think? As soon as we put some arms on it, can it now think? Um, at, at what points? Or is it just degrees of thought that it's capable of, maybe we could say? Well, uh, robots, as we currently conceive of them, are themselves not far from equilibrium. So with a robot, you can simulate many, many of these interactive properties that I'm talking about, and you can approximate them. So some robots, for example, are not at equilibrium. Um, 
uh, most of them are, in fact, not at equilibrium because they have a battery that's charged. And as the battery runs down, they go closer to equilibrium. Uh, and some robots can detect when the battery's going down and go plug themselves in somewhere or go under a light with a photocell or something like yeah. that. So they can capture some of the aspects uh, of, of what I'm talking about. But mostly every part of the robot is like a rock. It's like the computer in that respect, even though it does do some interacting. Um, if, if we start, well, one of the things that cognitive robotics has come across and has yielded sub-disciplines like epigenetic robotics and developmental robotics Whoa. is that we can't, we can't build and design robots um, fresh. They're simply too complicated. We have to build robots that somehow learn how to get around in the world just like children and infants do. Yeah, 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 because it's too difficult to program what to do in every given scenario under all given circumstances. Right. Okay. Robots start getting more and more complicated. Then, interestingly enough, in a thermodynamic sense, their memories, what they develop over the course of decades, itself it is far from equilibrium. And they can start having a stake in the world in the sense of maintaining what they have learned and what they have become through that learning. So... There is an, an indirect sense in which I think future robots might actually have a stake in the world, in which case uh, there would be uh, a difference between successfully indicating what they could do and unsuccessfully indicating what they could do. And maybe just because we've, we've gone pretty far down this rabbit hole, but it's, it's been a good one. I like that we were able to focus the interview here. Uh, as a, as a, a note to, to kind of, and of course, a very deep rabbit hole, but I'm interested in your thoughts. We're, we're talking now about thinking, about cognition and robots being capable of doing so, and you had mentioned having a stake in the world. Um, do we think of thinking and, and of consciousness in a similar sense? In other words, you know, we're talking now about thinking and maybe a kind of definition of thinking invol involving some degree of, of embodiment. Um, would that kind of embodiment be a requirement for what is colloquially referred to as consciousness, which of course we could argue about as well, or people could argue about as well, um, is, is embodiment required for that as well? In other words, you know, does, does a black box, maybe can it be conscious but not think, or is consciousness just a deeper uh, realm of uh, expression and capacity of thinking? Um, what are your thoughts on that, the tie between consciousness and embodiment, not, not just thinking right. and embodiment? Uh, I've argued that what we call consciousness is not, in fact, a unitary phenomenon. There's a whole bunch of different phenomena that each require their own model. They're related to each other, but they're not identical. So, for example, if you look at macroevolution, we have simple systems, simple organisms that can interact with the world. Um, they don't have to get very much more complicated before they can engage in primitive learning. Is interacting and learning a consciousness? Most people would say no. But then we get a little more complicated and we start looking at primitive emotions. Is interaction, learning, and emotions enough for a kind of consciousness? Well, then people's intuitions get fuzzier. Yeah. Uh, what I would point out is that if you've got a system that is normatively interacting with the world, that is necessarily embodied. It's necessarily contentful because those, those, those anticipations of what it could do uh, constitute content, they constitute something that could be true or something that could turn out to be false. It's from a point of view because it's from the point of view of the system, of the embodied system 
that engages in them. So already just in terms of those considerations, we have a lot of the properties that people associate with consciousness. But we don't have all of them. In particular, those in and of themselves don't account for what we might call reflective consciousness. They maybe account for awareness or primary consciousness or something like that. But we still have to talk about reflective consciousness because human beings, at least, in addition to be able to interact and learn and have emotions, can also internally reflect. And it seems to me that this internal reflection um, uh, is another product of macroevolution. Frogs can't internally reflect. Maybe some primates can to a partial extent. Um, it seems to me that there are certain aspects and parts of the brain that have evolved in order to engage in this sort of internal interaction. Yeah, meta metacognitive uh, exactly, capacity. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. And that constitutes reflective consciousness. So yeah. it, too, will have its own sense of uh, uh, content and, and truth and falsity and so on, but it does so in terms of the reflective process rather than just in terms of the direct interactions with the environment. Got it. Okay, so 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 that um, in other and I, I'm very congenial with this notion that um, consciousness comes in gradients or flavors or something, as opposed to consciousness is, as if it's you know people are imbued with it or not. I think that very clearly that there would be levels of self awareness, levels of a capacity to to reflect and to metacognate. Um, and, and potentially entire realms of that that we humans are not even capable of necessarily, but that maybe nonetheless are capable if we had different uh, hardware. Um, so, so in, in your view then as well, uh, consciousness in the same sense would, would have to spring from uh, or, or be built on top of what is kind of thinking and doing and interacting and, and would, would also necessarily... Uh, it would require some semblance of embodiment somewhere in order for consciousness to kind of spring forth from some complexity of thought. Exactly. Sometimes I talk about this distinction in terms of primary consciousness and reflective consciousness. Sometimes I talk about it in terms of awareness and, and meta-awareness or reflective awareness, something like that. But it, it seems pretty clear that they are not identical phenomena. Uh, and in any case, the reflective process... Uh, is a reflective process on the primary interactive processes. And so you still have to have the embodiment. Got it. Interesting. Well, uh, hopefully the, the uh, furtherment in, in the field of cognitive robotics, as well as all the other domains, cracking away at, at uh, the, the nature of intelligence and, and uh, neuroscience, will be able to shed a little bit of light on this. Uh, the, the question of embodiment, I think, right now is, is certainly more than up for grabs, and I'll be excited to see where the, the future holds. Hopefully today was insightful for some of the folks tuned in who've also thought around uh, about these particular notions. Mark, I want to say a big thanks for, for being able to be here and share your own insights on the Tech Emergence podcast. Okay, well, thank you. And that wraps up this episode on the Tech Emergence podcast. Thanks for being here. And remember to subscribe on iTunes to stay on top of the latest news breaks, researcher perspectives, and entrepreneur interviews in artificial intelligence, neurotechnology, 
and more. And we want to hear from you as well, so be sure to leave a review on iTunes, which are always appreciated, or contact us directly at info at techemergence.com. And remember, all of our entrepreneur interviews and interviews with top researchers from around the world, from Stanford to Oxford and beyond, can be found right on our main site at techemergence.com. Remember to sign up for the newsletter while you're there. So with the best of intentions for a brilliant future, this is Dan Figella signing off, and I'll see you next week.